We are going to do a blended account of the Gospels. We're going to be in three of the four Gospels with citations from the fourth this morning. We're going to be in Matthew and then in the Gospel of John, primarily in the Gospel of John. And then um, also we will be... Uh, see you guys? <laughs> also we will be... Um, I totally lost my place with that. <laughs> also we'll be in the Gospel of Luke because... All four of the Gospels cover this really, really important event in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus when he presented himself to Israel as Messiah, uh, no longer telling people, hey, put a lid on it. (laughs) It's our vernacular, but he was telling people, don't, just don't go broadcast this. Uh, and, And yet he got to that point where it was time for him to uh, present himself to the nation. Uh, beginning of a, a really a week of, of uh, just mixed things, great hope, but also obviously culminating in great tragedy, but great triumph. Uh, so uh, very interesting when you look at the big picture of all of this. So uh, we're going to look at, we're going to begin in the gospel of Matthew uh, just a, just a little bit of an intro there before we actually get into the text, looking at Jesus's ministry about a year away from the cross. Uh, two years into his three years plus ministry, he had been ministering in the northern part of Galilee at the northern part of the nation, also going over to Tyre and Sidon over on the coast of what's now Lebanon. Uh, he had been staying away from Jerusalem because things were heating up and uh, the religious leaders had plotted is hatched a plot to kill him. We'll see that they're, uh, they're going to put Lazarus on that list as well as he goes along here. Uh, so he had been doing miracles, feeding the, the thousands and uh, ministering, uh, squaring off regularly with the religious leaders, training his disciples. There was a lot going on in his ministry up until this point. Now, in Matthew 16, uh, one of my favorite passages in all of God's word, uh, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of it too far this morning, but as a point of reference, in Matthew 16, Jesus and his men came into the region known as Caesarea Philippi. We looked at a couple of weeks ago in the book of Acts, Caesarea Maritima, which was on the coast. Caesarea Philippi would be up in what we call now the Golan Heights. It was up uh, in the very northern part, north of the Sea of Galilee, up in the mountains, at the base of Mount Hermon, headwaters of the Jordan River, one of three headwaters, the, the main headwaters of the Jordan River. Uh, been there a couple of times when Stacy and I went. It was just absolutely gorgeous uh, place. The, the, the river just comes out of the ground. I, I mean, a huge amount of water coming out of the ground there in, in a beautiful setting. For centuries, a cultic center for occultic worship and, I mean, human sacrifice, the whole thing was going on there for centuries before. Uh, place, it was known as, uh, as Panius from the Greek god Pan, uh, but then it became Banius because the Arabs couldn't use the, couldn't make the P sound. <laughs> so they called it Banius instead. It's still called that to this day. So he's up there with his men. And uh, it's here at Caesarea Philippi in response to Peter's statement uh, 
that Jesus indeed was the Messiah. You are the, the son of God. Uh, that Jesus gave his disciples the keys to the kingdom. And I want to talk about that for a minute. In Matthew 16, verses 19 and 20, he tells them, he says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So he's telling them that after he's gone, that they would transact kingdom business on his behalf here. He's setting it up. Uh, Verse 20, and then he commanded his disciples they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. You see over and over again in the Gospels, he'll say, my hour has not yet come. And and we'll see that his hour was coming. We'll look at that next week when he he does go uh, into the city, when he does spend that final week squaring off with the religious leaders. Uh, So, but at this point, he's saying, look, just keep that to yourself. Keep that information to yourself. It'll be known soon enough is what's implied there. So he knew what was ahead and he gave these guys the keys to the kingdom. What he was doing was letting them know ahead of time they would be stewards. And that's what, what they did in that day was if a man was going to go on a journey, he would have, and they had servants, a lot of the people in that culture, there were a lot of servants in that day, and he would give his servants the keys to his property the keys to his kingdom in that sense. And that what they would do is they would keep things going. He, if he had a house manager, he would get charge of all of his master's goods and he would be the one that would transact on his behalf. And so these guys would understand he's giving them the keys to the kingdom because what they would do, would, he says, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That, that he's saying, you're going to be able to transact. And I've heard a lot of weird interpretations of that, but that's essentially what he's saying. He's giving them, at that moment, at that time, a contemporary example of what it would be for them to act in his stead, okay? So uh, essentially (laughs) what he's doing, and he's doing this far in advance. Like I said, he's a year away from the cross at this point uh, because he's training them. Yeah, I look at it, he's kind of giving these guys uh, apostolic training wheels. He's, he's saying, look, I want you to try this out. Remember, he sends out the 70, he does all of that. He wants them to begin to walk on their own because he knows that once he has gone to the cross, resurrected and ascended into heaven, that they will be the representation of the kingdom of God on this earth. Guess who that is now, by the way? It's the people of God. It's you and I. And we have been given the keys to the kingdom. We have been given the ability to transact on our father's behalf. And that's a, that's a pretty heavy charge. Talk about that more later. Uh, but looking at this whole thing with the keys, I, I, as I was preparing for this, it reminded me of my daughter when she was 16 years old. Uh, I, from my, I bought a, a Vita, 66 VW bug from my pastor and his mom was the original owner. And I mean, this thing was, it was cherry. It was really a nice little car. And I gave her the keys to that thinking, you know, I just, there's probably tickets in your future. There's probably a wreck in your future. <laughs> but I gave them to her because she needed to learn to drive on her own. And indeed, it didn't take long. It, unfortunately, a few weeks later, she hit an oak tree 
going about 40 and had to be life flighted to the trauma center and all of that. It's just, but truly, that's what he's doing. He's giving these guys charge of the kingdom ahead of time while he's there so he can coach them along so that he can disciple them. So, by the way, I, I used to tease my daughter uh, that hopefully she could have a car long enough that she'd be able to sell it because every car that she had, she would wreck before she got a chance. I got tired of having those things hauled off to the junkyard. Anyway, so coming away from Caesarea, the reason why we start here, folks, is because this is a, it's a turning point in Jesus's ministry. Uh, Caesarea Philippi would mark a major shift in the ministry that Jesus had in his earthly ministry. Uh, and, and they would now enter the last year of his public ministry. Matthew, going on in Matthew's gospel, tells us in, in verse 21 of Matthew 16, it says, from that time, that's the shift, there at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So he is telling them plainly and essentially leaving them scratching their heads like, what are you talking about? They did not understand at that time. I want to read you a quote about this uh, from the Believer's Bible Commentary, which is a good commentary, uh, pretty readily available online. It says, the day at Caesarea Philippi marks the watershed of the Gospels. From this point onward, the streams begin to flow in another direction. The current of popularity, which seemed likely in the earlier days of Jesus' ministry to carry him to a throne, has now been left behind. The tide sets towards the cross. At Caesarea, Jesus stood, as it were, on a dividing line. It was like a hilltop from which he could see behind him all the road that he had traveled, and in front of him the dark, forbidding way awaiting him. Uh, One look, he cast back to where the afterglow of happy days still lingered and then faced around and marched forward uh, toward the shadows. His course was now set to Calvary. So from this point in his ministry, he began the road to Calvary. He began to focus on going to complete the work that he came to to accomplish. Uh, And he would continue to equip and to prepare his men as they went. In Matthew 17, we're not going to go there, uh, we're told that his disciples were filled with sorrow as he shared of his coming betrayal into the hands uh, of men and that he would be killed and raised up on the third day. So a second time he tells them there in Matthew 17. In Matthew chapter 20, just surveying along here, he predicted his death and resurrection a third time uh, as he and the 12 went up to Jerusalem for what would be his final Passover feast. In Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19, we read, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And on the third day he will rise again. So I'm not going to go into it, but immediately after that, I mean, you would think that that would give these guys pause. (laughs) But right after that in the text uh, in Matthew is when James and John's mother comes up to Jesus and says, hey, by the way, could 
my, you know, my two wonderful boys have management positions when you establish your kingdom. You know, could one sit on your right and one on your left? And he says, you don't know what you're asking. And they will indeed, one sit on my right and one on my left, but not the way you think. Because he had just been speaking of going to the cross. And he says, no, and there would be, again, he would have a thief on either side, but it wouldn't be her sons. So again, they were, they were thinking all along that he had come to set up his kingdom on earth then. I mean, we have the great advantage. I mean, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you know that that's not what happened. But they didn't see that. They're living through this. This is unfolding as they go. And they're looking at this and thinking, oh, right, man, we're headed to Jerusalem. And, you know, Jesus, we've seen all that he can do. He's rose people from the dead. He's doing all this stuff over here. And, and, and he knows how to feed multitudes of people with just a few baskets, a few fish and some loaves. And, you know, all of this, I mean, they're thinking in their minds, this is getting really exciting. And this is going to be good. As they arrived in the area surrounding Jerusalem, uh, we'll switch the narrative to John chapter 12. Uh, We're going to go through quite a bit of that. It says then uh, in chapter 12 of John, the gospel of John, verse one, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. I like the way that John has to use that as a point of reference. Okay, that guy, (laughs) the guy that, remember, he had been in the tomb for four days. It says, and he stinketh. Yeah, that guy, that they, he stumbled out of the tomb and, and they were all standing there with their mouths hanging on the ground to the point where Jesus had to say, just don't just stand there, unbind him and let him go. So there's Lazarus. Uh, they, they go to Bethany, which is just a couple of miles from Jerusalem over on the, uh, the other side of the Mount of Olives. We'll look at some slides in a minute that will show you where all of that's at. Uh, so he's there and Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus came to Bethany to the home of Simon the leper. Now, there are some that say these are separate events. I don't believe that. I believe that in the same way that the, the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, it's like looking at a traffic accident standing on different corners of an intersection. You're going to have a different point of view. You're going to describe it a little bit differently. One says he came from the left. Well, if you're across the street, he came from the right. That doesn't mean that they contradict one another. It means that they blend together. And that's part of what we're doing this morning is we're blending these accounts. So there they are. They're at the home of of Simon, actually, more accurately, Simon the former leper. Because if he was still Simon the leper, I don't think anybody would want to go to dinner. Uh, So that's where they're at. In verse 2, it says, Then there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now, Imagine with me <laughs> the scene here. Jesus is there with his 12 men. So there's 13, him and the, the 12, and then Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Simon the leper. There's at least 17 people in probably a, a pretty small house. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, ever been to Israel, they didn't have big lavish houses. I mean, some people did, the wealthier people did, but these are common folks. And so they would have been crammed into this place but they're enjoying time with the Lord. Um, and there can be little doubt, too, as you think about this. There's Lazarus sitting there. You know, maybe it says he's just sitting at the table with Jesus. He doesn't have to open his mouth to be a witness for Christ. I mean, these guys all know 
This is the, this is Lazarus 2.0. <laughs> this isn't the same. He is the same guy, but he had come back from the dead. I have a little idea of how that is, but I'm not Lazarus. This is a big deal for the people around. I mean, they're seeing living proof of the power of God in their midst. Verse 3, Then Mary took a a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So Mary takes this oil of spikenard. Now, this wouldn't be regular everyday oil of spikenard. Like, and you can get that today. It's, it, they grow it in the Appalachian Mountains here in the United States. And it's kind of an amber-colored oil. Well, this was an oil in, 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 this, in, in their day, 2,000 years ago. It was a different kind of spikenard that grew way up in northern India, in the mountains of northern India. Now you could probably look at it as Nepal in the Himalayas. And it was this brilliant red plant, and it produced a red oil. Really interesting stuff. So we don't know. It says that it was very expensive. We don't know if it was somebody's dowry or, or it was Mary's inheritance. We, we don't, it doesn't tell us how she got this oil. We just know that it was extremely highly valued. And so in the midst of the gathering, Mary approaches Jesus. She breaks open an alabaster cruise. You know what a cruise is, like women put perfume in. And it's got a pound of this oil in it. Uh, and she begins to pour it onto Jesus. Now, again, Matthew and Mark going back and again, blending the gospel accounts here. They tell us that she started by pouring this stuff on his head. So picture with me that she's pouring this oil down the head of Jesus and he would have red streaks coming down onto his shoulders, his face as she did this and that she would have plenty left over to be to bend down, to kneel down then and to begin to pour this oil on his feet and then to wipe his feet with her hair. I, you know, and every time I've looked at this so many times over the years and every time I look at it, I, I, I come away with a fresh sense of awe at, at, at the depth of her worship. I mean, because this is truly an act of absolute adoration and worship. And I believe that she knew what was going on because remember, she's the one that, that when Mary was complaining, hey, you know, Mar- or Martha was complaining, Mary's not helping me. She's, <laughs> you know, I, I'm busy here in the kitchen, Jesus. And Jesus essentially rebukes her and says, Mary chose the better part. And what was that better part? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning. She was hungry for Jesus. She was hungry for knowledge. She, she was hungry to understand what was going on. And I believe that she knew what was going on in this moment. Uh, and the text, I believe, bears that out. So she pours the oil on his head and then pours it on his feet, begins to wipe his feet with her hair. The house was filled with this beautiful aroma. Uh, Everybody would be looking on at this point. Verse 4, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? What's going on, Jesus? What are you doing? I mean, this is such a waste. We're told, John writes, This he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put into it. So, I think it's interesting that the first words, and these are the first words we, we hear Judas speak 
in the biblical narrative. And his first words are, why? Why, Jesus? And, and he's taking him on. He's challenging him. What are you doing? Now, briefly, looking at the value of this oil, a denarii was about a day's wage. So 300 denarii, I mean, you're talking about this translates to the better part of a year's worth of wages in our economy. I don't know. (laughs) Is it 50,000 bucks? Is it 40,000 bucks? I mean, you're talking hugely expensive stuff. And the way that it would have to be, this oil, the way that it was manufactured and the distance they had to bring it, this is the kind of stuff that kings used to exchange gifts with other royalty, members of royalty and so on. This wasn't a commoner's thing. But again, we're talking about the king here. And uh, this is a very appropriate act of honoring the king. Verse 7, Jesus said, let her alone. She's kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you will have with you always, but me you will not have always. So remember, again, this is the same Mary that in Luke chapter 10 that chose the better part. I believe she had a, a very good understanding of the significance of this moment. Uh, the, the, the purity of her worship is notable. Verse 9, now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. Hey, I heard that that, I heard the dead guy's there. (laughs) And so they go and they, they want to go see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Now I want you to, don't let the irony of this be lost on you. Don't you think that Lazarus would be a little bit of a difficult guy to threaten? <laughs> what are you going to do? Kill me again? <laughs> Just I read every time I read this, I think, oh my goodness, these guys, yeah, they're plotting to put him to death. Jesus has already taken care of that once. Don't you think? On a, on a more serious note, uh, thinking about Jesus here uh, coming into the area of Jerusalem and Bethany. Uh, over the hill, uh, this final Passover would be different for him. Uh, he did so knowing that this time he would he he himself would be the fulfillment of all that the Passover looked forward to. Uh, that he himself would be the spotless Lamb of God that would be sacrificed. In Exodus chapter twelve, uh, look at a couple of verses there in, in verses three through six. Uh, We read, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of this month, every man shall take himself for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house, take it according to the number of the persons and according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. So he's saying, you know, if you can't afford it or you have a small family and you want to share with your neighbor, that's fine. But I want you guys to get a lamb, to take this lamb. Your lamb will be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So it could be a baby baby sheep, a baby goat, either one. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. That's the first Passover. That's when God gave instructions through Moses to the children of Israel 
that they would take this lamb. They would, when they killed it, they would put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel and the angel of death would pass over them. That's where the word Passover comes from. The 10th plague in Egypt, the plague of death. Now, this month where Jesus was about to ride into Jerusalem was the month of Nisan. And that's an Assyrian term. The Hebrew month would be Abib, and they're the same. It's just different language there. And uh, it was known as the day of preparation. And that's the thing that's being talked about back here in, in Exodus. It was the day that the lambs were selected. They were prepared and selected. They had to be without spot or blemish. And they would be kept for four days within the house for observation. And that's why after Jesus rides into town, we're not going to cover it this morning. He goes up on the temple mount. And remember, it says that he cleansed the temple, that he began to turn over the tables of the money changers and the people. Because the high priest, Annas, well, actually Caiaphas was the high priest, but Annas had been the high priest, his father-in-law. He had turned this into a whole big huckster deal. If you went to the temple during those days and you had money from, because people came from all over the empire, you had to exchange it for the, the currency of the sanctuary. The, the, the tire Tyrrhenian shekel and, and the whole thing I'm not going to go into. But the exchange rate would be pretty steep. So they were making money just on exchanging the money because you had to have, you know, kosher money. You had to have money that had been blessed by them. And then if you brought a sheep and think about it, there are crowds of people. I mean, Jerusalem would swell to enormous size. I mean, uh, some say upwards of 2 million people would descend on this whole region. And I mean, it would be a huge crowd and people would be dragging their lambs along on this day to go in to get them inspected by the priests so that they could use them as a spotless lamb for the Passover. And of course, the priests would wink, wink, find something wrong And, oh, well, this isn't good enough, but we do have one we can sell you, which is probably the last guy's lamb that they traded in. Who knows? But they had turned this whole thing into a circus. It had formerly been over on the Mount of Olives, but they had moved it to the temple so that they could have a concentration of people there, greater marketing, (laughs) and and they were able to, to, to get more traction, to get more, to get more money out of the people. Uh, by moving it right to the temple precincts itself. That's why Jesus said, you've turned my father's house into a den of merchandise. And he was sick about it. Again, not going to go into that, but uh, that's part of the story here. And it's part of this day of selection. This would be the day when the people were selecting their lambs. Interesting. Talking about Jesus being the Passover lamb, the one who would be selected he would come into town, actually it'd be the next day after the dinner. This is Nisan 9 when he's up at, uh, with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Simon and all that. Uh, but the next day when he comes into the city, it's the 10th of Nisan. It's the same day on the calendar, the exact same day. And um, we know from the gospel accounts of the crucifixion that Jesus hung on the cross until 3 p.m., 3 p.m. to a Jewish mind was known as twilight. Uh, He would be the selected one. He would spend the next four days being examined by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And and at the end of that four days, when he was put on trial after the the period of inspection, uh, he would be put on 
trial. And in John 19.6, Pilate would speak those prophetic words. He says, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. In other words, total fulfillment of all that was spoken of back in Exodus, as Jesus now is the Passover incarnate. Verse 12, uh, John uh, 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took palm branches from, of palm trees, uh, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. I mean, there's a crowd of people that are coming out of the city. And they want to see this Jesus guy. The, the city would have been just electrified at this point because word had spread uh, as to what was taking place. So as they're doing this whole thing with the palm fronds, they're quoting Psalm 118, uh, where it says, save now in verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Again, they're thinking... He's coming into town so he can set up his kingdom, so he can throw off the Romans and ooh-ha, life's about to get good. And, and so that's what's going on. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Hosanna essentially was a cry for divine help. And they wanted help because these people were horribly oppressed. They were heavily taxed. The Romans were absolutely cruel with them. They solved problems with their swords. And so it's not that these people were being unreasonable. It's because they didn't understand the significance that Jesus came with a, a much higher mission and that he came to be able to deal with sin. And out of that, and we'll get into that towards the end of the message, but out of that, he would gather a people to himself that would be concerned about the other things of the day. Now, I've got four slides here. I want to show you real quickly uh, the first is the Temple Mount as it looks today. Uh, looking down, this would be like looking from Mount Zion, which is uh, off to one side, further into the city. If you look, there's the, the, you see the Golden Dome there. That's on the Temple Mount. And then across the way, towards the top of the frame, that's the Mount of Olives. Let's go to the second slide. I actually have them labeled here. <laughs> and so... The Mount of Olives is, uh, again, it's east of Jerusalem. It's east of the city. And then there's the Temple Mount. Now between them is a deep ravine. All right. If you've heard of the Kidron Valley, that's what that is. The Kidron stands between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. So going to the third slide, looking from the Mount of Olives today. Now, if you were standing on the Mount of Olives, actually this this photo is a little higher than the Mount of Olives is. It's not that high. This is probably taken from an aircraft. But it's from the vantage point of the Mount of Olives looking towards Jerusalem now. And the last slide is essentially the same angle, but an artist's conception from the Mount of Olives. And I want you to note something towards in this fourth slide, towards the bottom of the frame to the right of center, there's a bridge. And it was called the Bridge of the Red Heifer. And that was, it was to bridge across, and it was a Roman arched bridge. It was something the Romans built, uh, to bridge across the Kidron Ravine. It, it, it's fairly deep today. It was much deeper in the first century. 
And so coming down from the Mount of Olives, you would cross this wide bridge. This it was like a highway on it uh, to go into the city. Or if people were coming out of the city, they would be coming out across that as well. So uh, I just want you to, to locate again. I, I've mentioned before, I like to locate these things geographically so that you know that this is a real place. And these are things that were happening in that day. Uh, I think it's reasonable to assume that the, the Bridge of the Red Heifer was, it had a huge statue, by the way, on the Mount of Olives side. It's off the frame here. Uh, a huge statue of a red heifer. And again, the prophetic significance of that, don't have time for this morning, but it does play a part in prophecy. So as we saw in verse 13, there's a huge crowd that's coming out of the city. Uh, and then verse 14 says that Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. That's a prophecy that's being fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled a a number of prophecies just by virtue of the fact that he rode into town on this day. Uh, Looking at, as we looked at in Exodus, and now looking uh, at Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, So again, perfectly fulfilling that which was prophesied hundreds of years before by the prophet Zechariah. Verse 16, and I know we're we're moving through this, but again, it's it's the best way I can present this is to blend the Gospels so that you have an idea of what's happening throughout the New Testament. Because again, these, these events are recorded in all four. Verse 16, his disciples didn't understand these things at first. (laughs) bingo, they didn't understand when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to be, they're going to kill me. And they they were like sad, but they still thought that something was going to give and that he was going to come and set up his kingdom. So they didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and they had done these things to him. So they understood later the significance of these events. They're just living them out in that moment. Therefore, the people who were with him, uh, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, verse 18, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So there's a crowd coming out of the city to meet him because the city was abuzz with the news that something big was going on. And then there's the people that had come to Lazarus's house in Bethany and they're coming down the Mount of Olives with him. So there's these two crowds that are coming together and they're going to converge. (laughs) It's a scene. Uh, There would have been a a huge crowd coming down the Mount of Olives from Bethany, another crowd coming out of the city. And as the two crowds come together, uh, there would have been also another thing going on. This is something that I learned as I was preparing this time around, uh, that there would have been a group of priests up on the city wall. Uh, if you remember looking at the slides a minute ago, the, these are the, Jerusalem was a walled city, and that was common in that day to repel invaders, and they would have they, the, the city was surrounded with walls. The Temple Mount still is, and there are still walls around the city, beautiful walls. And you can walk on the the ramparts. The rampart is the part on the top of the wall. And so the priests would stand on the ramparts of the wall. And there would be another group of priests that would stand in front of the wall on the ground. 
Uh, and they would, do you know what antiphonal singing is? It's where they sing different parts and they would sing back and forth to one another. So got the group coming out, the crowd coming out of the city, the crowd coming down the hill and the priests are singing at the same time. And it's amazing what they're singing. Uh, <laughs> they're singing from Psalm 24. Uh, the priests in the front of the wall would sing, saying, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Jesus knew that that would be this day. Because this, again, that's what they sang on the day of selection, the very beginning of the Feast of Passover. Now the priests up on the wall would cry, Who is the King of glory? And then those on the bottom would say, the Lord of hosts, the Lord mighty in battle. And they would repeat it. Who is the king of glory? So all of that's taking place. All of this is going on. And the crowd broke into, at that point, they broke into spontaneous praise. Switching to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 19 now. Uh, we read then in verse 37 of chapter 19 of Luke, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called him to him from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and he said to them, I tell you that if these should become silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Oh, I wish I had time to develop the text more, but the whole intent this morning is to just give you, to present the blended account of how these things come together as we look at it in the the various Gospels. So in the midst of this frenetic scene, it's really the best word. I mean, it's there's just a lot going on. Uh, The crowds, the priests, the dust, the noise, the praise, the rebuking. Jesus is riding down the Mount of Olives at that moment. And he's weeping. Going on in the Gospel of Luke. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Another prophetic fulfillment in that. In Daniel chapter 9, there's a formula there. Uh, we're told no one understand this in Daniel 9 uh, on this 10th day of Nisan, predicted nearly 500 years before. Uh, we're told no one understand this from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The, the Hebrew word is heptad and it's a unit not of weeks, it's a, it's a week of years. So you're talking 69 weeks of years. 483 years, these in, or they used a 360-day year then, or 173,880 days. Now, it, to do the math on that, 483 years from March 14th, 445 BC, which is the known date that King Cyrus of Persia gave the Jews the charge to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, from that day to 
running the, 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 the math out, brought it to Nisan 10, 32 AD, this very day. And so when Jesus says, you missed the day of your visitation, he's, say, he's weeping over the city because they should have been ready. They should have seen his coming, coming. And now they would be judged for not. And he says in you, one stone will not be left upon another. In the year 66, the Roman legions under Titus would come and set in a four-year siege against the city. And at the end of that, they would be so incensed that when they broke through the siege banks, that they would not leave one stone upon another. Walking along the western wall, just down from where you see the popular one, where the, the wailing wall, where they're praying and all of that, uh, in the old city, there are still stones that were pushed off of the Temple Mount that actually dent the Roman road below. I mean, these huge, huge stones. And they swept the Temple Mount clean. There would have been hundreds of crosses around the city, Those that they didn't crucify, they would cart off to be enslaved. It was a horrible scene. You can read about that in extra biblical literature. But in 70 AD, they cleaned house. Israel essentially geographically remained on the map. But as a nation, the Jews would not be, uh, they would not be a nation again until 1948. Uh, Just remarkable. So that's the 69 weeks of Daniel. Again, we don't have time to go into uh, great detail, but there is a 70th week in Daniel that's prophesied. And if you look at the prophetic record and you see how accurate it has been from the things that were prophesied back then that we already can look at and see that they were fulfilled to the letter, to the day, how accurate are those things that have been prophesied which have not yet come to pass? Because that 70th week of Daniel has yet to happen. We live between the 69th week and the 70th week. And that's the days that we live in today. The church age, the age of grace. And when God closes the door, when that last Gentile receives Christ, when that last Gentile turns from their sin, embraces Jesus as Messiah, and the church is taken up, then that that 70th week will kick in. We know it is the Great Tribulation. And that will be hell on earth. Uh, I was just reading last night in the book of Revelation a bit, and uh, pretty sobering. Anyway, as we wrap up, I want to look at four mindsets that we see represented here in the pages of Scripture, in the pages that, that we've looked at this morning. And the first is this, the mindset upon seeking the sensational as an end to itself. It doesn't take too much of a look at, quote, religious broadcasting (laughs) to see that there is a lot of sensationalism out there pertaining to the things of God. There's a lot of, I I refer to it as, as religious junk food. In verses 17 and 18, it says the people who were with uh, Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. And folks, it's fine. And God does perform miracles. And the miraculous is real. I'm not, I am not making a case against that at all. But it's called a sign for a purpose. A sign points to something. I've spent 50 years in the sign business. I have made a lot of signs. 
And and I don't make them to just sit on the bench in the workshop. They go somewhere to point to something. And in the Bible, when Jesus would perform a sign, it was to point to something. In John 6, 26, when he fed the 5,000, Jesus answered them, said, now, so he feeds the 5,000 and he dismisses the crowd. He says, go home. You got the wrong idea. (laughs) He even dismisses his disciples. He says, get in the boat. I'll meet you tomorrow over in Capernaum. He's on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I believe it was at Mount Arbel, but that's a whole different study. But so he goes, that's the night he walks on water and, and Peter tries and then sinks and it's great stuff there. But the next day he's in Capernaum and the crowd actually comes to find him. They come around the lake because they understand that he has relocated now. He's come around and now he's in Capernaum. So this crowd is there and they're expecting he's going to feed them again. <laughs> It, so they're, they're, they're seeking the sensational. They want to see him do some, come on, let's do some miracles. Come on, let's get this thing going. Let's, let's take an offering. Yeah, well, let's, let's get this thing on the rolling here because we know that you have this magical power. Jesus responds to the crowd. He answered to the, he answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. He had set the bar here, and their response was here. When Jesus was on his way to Calvary, when he was on his way to this feast, when he was on his way to this final Passover, he had set the bar here, and his men's understanding was here. And it wouldn't be until later that they'd have the aha moment and be able to understand just what he was doing. And folks, it's not a bad thing to see the miraculous. I have seen some full-blown miracles in my time as a Christian. And I am absolutely convinced that God, at any time he chooses, can bend the laws of physics because he owns them. It's no problem for him. He's God. I look at it and I go, ooh, ah. But you've got to remember that's always for a purpose. We looked at that in the book of Acts, that It's never as an end to themselves that when we see the sensational, it's always to point to the fact that Jesus, if he, when he fed the 5,000, if if he'd have said, you know, I fed you and therefore you realize that I have the power to forgive your sins, I think he'd have been excited. They said he has the power to feed us. Not, not really as good. Uh, And so understand that the miraculous exists. But it's to point to the fact they're attesting miracles. That's what they're called in the book of Acts. They attest to the fact that he is the son of God, that he does have the power to redeem, to purchase our souls. Far more important than whether or not he can give me some bread. The second thing I want to look at is the mindset upon seeking political solutions at the expense of the spiritual. And I want to be careful on this because... Like you, I have some very strong political opinions, especially about what's going on in our world today, what's going on in the last week. And I'm not going to, I am going to so avoid that right now. <laughs> in verse 12 uh, of chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, it says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees, went out to meet him, cried, Hosanna, save now. Come on, Jesus. Bring prosperity now. Throw the Romans off now. Again, I want to urge balance because we do stand against injustice. 
We do stand against immorality. We do stand against people who are, are, are just treating others horribly. And, and, that's, and that's, that's just being discerning. But folks, we've got to be careful not to, not to stand for those things at the expense of understanding that the problem is sin. The problem is sin. I think about it, sometimes I daydream and I think, what would happen if everybody in the federal government repented? I know, I know. That's a fantasy. (laughs) Seriously though, I mean, think about it. The problem is sin. It's the root problem. And, And when people's sin is dealt with, when they realize, you know what, I've been going down this road and it's wrong, and I need, to, I need to change my mind. That's what repentance is. And I need to stop going down this road and I need to go down another road that's right. How much of society's ills would be cured? And folks, yeah, we live on an evil, in an evil world. I mean, uh, it's dangerous out there. And I'm not going to make any bones about it. It's getting more dangerous. It's getting more dangerous for the church almost daily. Seen some things this week in the media that have caused me to just stand shocked. Cover up a hate crime where people died? Come on. All right. I told you I'm not going to get started. We've got to understand. We've got to have perspective. It's not a matter of just ignoring it. Uh, That would be foolish. Absolutely foolish. But it is a matter of having perspective. Understanding that these are things that, as a child of God, that I don't have the luxury of taking matters into my own hands, you know, charging out there. There's no place in the New Testament where God uses the church as an instrument for judgment. He used Israel as an instrument for judgment, but there's no place in the New Testament where God uses the church that way. My wife and I were talking before church. She said, well, you know, would you, would you ever like tell people to take up arms? And I said, that, that, that's, a, that's a tough one. If somebody's threatening, threatening my family, I'm not going to just lie down. Uh, that, probably shouldn't even go there. That's a whole different discussion. The point is, have perspective. Uh, you see the mindset on seeking uh, political solutions as an end to themselves. Uh, in Matthew 27, when Jesus was on trial, it says, when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, who was a political insurrectionist, a real one, or Jesus, who is called Christ. We're going to see next week that as he goes through this week, this popularity that he has of the people spontaneously praising and all of the hoopla with the palm fronds and laying their cloaks in the road and the crowd coming out of the city, the crowd coming down the hill, and, and the priests singing, and all of that stuff. That was a mile wide and an inch deep. Because by the end of the week, that would be the crowd that would be shouting, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Give us somebody that makes a difference with Rome. Short-sighted. Third thing I want to look at is the mindset upon religion. And folks, I love the fact that we are not a religious bunch. We're a spiritual bunch. And I, I make a distinction. I mean, because James says, here it is pure and undefiled religion, helping widows and orphans and, and that sort of thing. So uh, I'm not saying that, and it's a terminology thing, but these guys, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were really hung on their stuff. 
And, and you hear so much these days about, well, that's the narrative, but here's what's really going on. The narrative for them was, oh yeah, we are all about the law of Moses. We're all about making sure that God is honored and all of that. And really the reality of it, they really could care less. They worried about two things. First thing they worried about was their own religious power and authority. In verse 19 of chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, it says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him, i.e. it's not after us. They didn't like that. The second thing they worried about it was, was the, the Romans taking that authority, that power away from them because Israel was a puppet government under Rome and Rome had the ability to do that. In the chapter before, the one we've been looking at in chapter 11 in verses 47 and 48, uh, when, this is when they convene the council and they hatch the plot to kill Jesus. This is that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. He is a threat to us. He threatens our power base. One of my favorite passages is in John chapter 13 where Jesus says, let me show you what authority in the kingdom of God looks like. And he wraps himself with an apron, grabs a pail of water, and goes around to each of his disciples and washes their feet. And he, and he concludes, he's, he, and he's basically, he's, again, this is training wheels. This is, he's commissioning them. He is showing them what being stewards of the kingdom, what having the keys to the kingdom looks like. And it doesn't look like, hey, I'm the new boss. It looks like I get to serve. I need to go low. He says, you know, a student's not greater than his teacher. Neither implied are you greater than me. But this is how I want you to do it when you go out. And when these men would go out, he's saying, look, you need to have this mindset. You, not that you have to go and wash every person's feet. But the mindset that drives that is the mindset that the kingdom of God runs on. And it's not, oh, look at me, look at how powerful I am. It's not power authority, that's the world. It's servant authority. It's how can I serve you? How can I, how can I elevate you? How can I meet your needs? How can I look to what is going to be in your best interest, not mine? Polar opposite of religion. That's the fruit of a relationship with Christ. The fourth thing here as we wrap up, is the mindset upon discipleship. It's a mind that's set upon the things above. Chapter 12 tells us that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus all enjoyed a relationship with Jesus. Out of that we see in it, here at what we've looked at, Mary was worshiping the Lord, the oil and the hair and all of that. Martha was serving. She, Mary was a worshiper of Jesus. Martha was a servant to Jesus. And Lazarus was a witness for Jesus. A beautiful picture. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we read, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind, talking about mindsets here, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also will appear with him in glory. 
Folks, you got to keep in mind, this life ain't it. There's a lot more to come. The Bible tells us this life is as a vapor. It's like a mist. It appears for a moment and it's gone. And like you, I can get so caught up in, in the challenges of the day. I can get so caught up in the relationships that are, that are stressed or strained. I can get so caught up in having my, my, my view horizontal that I forget to look up. Understanding what God's word says is look up for your redemption draws near. It's about perspective. It's about having a, don't give me, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I just, I have never bought that. I've shared that before with you guys. No, be heavenly minded because at that point you will be more earthly good. And not everybody's going to like you as you're heavenly minded. We live in an evil world. We live in a world where people are put off by the things of God because guess what? You can't have your own way and walk with the Lord at the same time. And we live in a world that more and more and more and more people having their own way is being promoted. It's being elevated. It's being celebrated. Fix your mind on the things that are above. You know, I I am in awe of the miraculous. I want to see justice in our world. I truly do. And I think you do too. And for me, I want to see Micah 6.8 fulfilled in my own life. I'm blessed when I see it in yours. This is what he says. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the mind of a disciple. That's the mindset that we're in process. I don't have this nailed. And I would venture that neither do you, but we're all in process. And as we have our mind set on the things above, we are going to have the desire to, to love mercy, to walk humbly, and to do justly. Let's pray. Father, as uh, we race through the, your word this morning, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, that you'd bring to our remembrance the things that, you, that we've looked at this morning, those things that you have, those things you want to speak to each and every one of us. And Lord, I I know your word calls it the foolishness of preaching. That through that foolishness that you speak to your people. And so I pray, Father, find hearts that are open, receptive to your word being implanted. And that you would conform us to the image of your son through it. Lord, give us a hunger in a really screwed up world. One that's getting more sideways every day. Lord, give us the ability to see correctly. Give us the ability, Lord, to be able to assess through spiritual eyes. And Lord, give us the assurance that we need when things are dark and seem to be spinning out of control that all we have to do is simply call upon you to draw near to you, to lean into you, to know that that's where our lives are centered. And so, Father, we we just thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Lord, for that which we look at and commemorate today in the triumphal entry. In, in Jesus coming in uh, on this day, presenting himself as Messiah, knowing that people's attitudes and people's understanding needed to be elevated even then, and yet loving them enough, loving us enough to do what it is that he had intended to do and fulfilled in doing in the cross. So, Lord, we just give you our hearts afresh this morning. 
We pray that you would stir us up to love and good works as your word declares and that our lives would reflect the relationship we have with you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.